As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Today on Feminine Roadmap, we are going to be talking about divorce. Are you sure you really want to get divorced? Is it really the best decision? Is the grass really greener? This topic is so important. I can't wait to share it with you. Stay tuned. Hello, Feminine Roadmappers. It is Gina here on another lovely Monday morning. And today we are talking about divorce. My guest is Jacqueline Newman. She is a managing partner at a Midtown matrimonial law firm. And she is going to be sharing some perspective with us about divorce, thinking about it, preparing for it, whether or not it really is the right thing for you. So let me introduce to you my guest, Jacqueline Newman. Thank you, Jacqueline, for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Well, as I told you before I hit play, obviously, I think this is an important topic because my tribe is in midlife and a lot of midlifers' marriages are falling apart for different reasons. And I thought... It's a conversation we need to have. So I found you and you are a matrimonial attorney. So what you do is you deal with divorce on a daily basis. Is that right? That's correct. So what led you to become a matrimonial attorney? What was it that made you think that's what I want to do with my life? Well, actually, it's something I really wanted to do since I was really young, which is interesting because there's no divorce in my family, you know, about five times out. But uh, my parents are both psychotherapists. So the big family joke was that I was too aggressive to be a therapist. (laughs) You know, I always loved the law and I basically, I I mean, I was in college. I focused primarily on matrimonial law. And then when I went to law school, I did the same thing and I put all my eggs in one basket and luckily it worked out. That's amazing. And you know, I love your perspective, which I know you're going to share because we need balance in our options, right? And you kind of create that balance in how you how shall I say, have the discussion with your clients. So take me through what it looks like if somebody is going to get a divorce and they come to you for the first time. How do you start that conversation with them? So usually in any initial consultation, you know, one of the first questions I ask a client is, are you sure you want to get divorced? And the way I look at this is it's an incredibly difficult decision. And if you are not sure, if you can't look me in the eye and say, yes, I absolutely am ready to get divorced. No questions asked. I recommend that you go see a marriage counselor, you go see a therapist. You need to make sure divorce is financially expensive, it's emotionally expensive, and it's very hard to turn back from, and you just don't wanna have regrets. So unless you are 
100%, sure, my big recommendation is that you go and do everything you need to do to make sure that you are 100% sure. Oh, wow. And how do, how do people respond to that? You know, I think people are usually a little taken aback. It's probably not my best business move because as a matrimonial attorney, to be possibly turning them away. But generally, people will understand it. Um, and usually in that consultation, I'll say, listen, I will go through the process with you so you can at least be educated and understand it. Um, so we'll do like a high-level discussion on it. But a lot of times people walk away and say, you know, I hear you. And I am going to try to go work on my marriage. And, you know, some, some come back and some don't. That's amazing. You're actually creating some healing on some people, you know? Yeah, I like to think so. That's awesome. So what is the process that you use to aid them if they decide they do want to save their marriage? Do you have like um, suggestions or processes that you encourage them to go through? Well, I mean, obviously therapy is one of the big ones. Um, You know, and sometimes what will happen in an initial consultation, the more we're talking and they're explaining to me the things that they're, you know, upset about in their marriage. I mean, first of all, sometimes I'm just a dose of reality. You know, there's something what I call Facebook perfect. And so what's going on in this era is that a lot of people are looking at Facebook and everybody looks like they're having these wonderful marriages and their children never cry. And, you know, their husbands are perfect. And I think that what that does is it creates an anxiety in people and it creates people questioning their own marriages because they don't look as perfect. You know, little do they know that as soon as that picture was, you know, snapped, the child was hysterical or, you know, the husband walked off or whatever it is, but that's not what it looks like. And so sometimes when I talk about that and, you know, they'll talk about, you know, I see these people and they look so perfect and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, listen, I can tell you right now that that's not the case, you know, and I, and I can tell you that half of the people that you, you know, your kids are in school with and everything, you know, they're coming to see me. Like it's not as perfect as everything else is. And I think sometimes when you get that dose of reality, it can give you perspective that you just didn't have before. So that's one thing. Um, you know, other than that, you know, sometimes with clients, you know, when they're scared to talk about certain things with their spouse, because of whatever reason, uh, you know, I've role played with clients where I basically showed them ways to, you know, temper someone's anger or be able to, you know, broach sensitive topics like money and things like that. And I think that's been helpful for people. Um, but for the most part, it really, I think is also education because the more that they learn what divorce looks like, um, the more they'll be possibly in a position that they don't want to move forward. You know, and I will say one of the big things that I do when I talk about this is, you know, when they say that they think they're ready, I give them almost a little quiz and I say, okay, well, you know, if you're dealing with a parent, let's say it's a mother who, you know, is primarily home with her children. And I say, okay, well, you say you're ready for divorce and that's fine. How are you going to feel about the fact that your child is not going to sleep under your roof every night? How are you going to feel that holidays are going to be split? You're not going to have every single Christmas, odds are. So your kids are waking up and, you know, your spouse is home. And you're not going to see their little faces and, you know, when they open their presents. And, you know, I play these, you know, scenarios out for them so they can really be sure that they're ready. Like, are they ready for what it entails when you go through the divorce? Um, You know, and some people say that will be really painful, but I still think it's the best thing. And other people say, no, (laughs) I'm not ready for my child not to be in my home. And I say, well, then you're not ready to get divorced. What are the major trigger points that, that you find? Are you seeing a pattern in the things that are triggering people to have divorce? What are kind of the major hitters in that problem? You know, I think that, you know, things have been the same. (laughs) You know, it's human nature generally. What I really think, you know, a lot of people think that it's, you know, lack of, you know, lack of sex or too much sex with somebody else or money issues and stuff. These are generally what people think. I actually don't think that that's what causes divorce. I think those are symptoms. I think really the reason people get divorced is that they no longer know how to communicate. I think what ends up happening is that in the beginning of marriage, everyone's speaking English. 
But by the time they get to me, someone's speaking Portuguese and someone's speaking Mandarin. They've just completely lost the ability to communicate. And that's what I think is the core of it. So what ends up happening is communication is lost and you know, someone says something and they just don't hear it the way that it's intended. And from there, it ends up being a spiral. And then it becomes, you know, then there's anger and then there's resentment and then there are control issues. And that's what leads to the money issues. And that's what leads to the withholding of sex or whatever it might be. So I actually don't think that it's actually anything different than what it's always been, which really comes down to communication and learning how to fight well and learning how to get along well. And probably how to negotiate. Yes, absolutely. Which really goes into the fighting well. Like, that's something we talk about. And that is something I role play. Like, I always say, like, don't hit below the belt. You know, when you get in fights with people, learning how to fight well, I think, is a skill. And being able to communicate what you're feeling and your anger and whatever it is in a way that the other person can hear you. Because if you're just yelling, you're just screaming whatever you're feeling at the moment, the other person is not processing in their minds, you're not communicating. Your point isn't getting across. And so... One of the things I definitely talk about with my clients, whether they're getting divorced or not, um, is learning how to fight well, learning how to fight in an effective way, you know, not to back down, you know, not to say that you have to, you know, absorb everything that's going on around you, but you need to be able to communicate in a way that's effective. Otherwise, you know, your fighting doesn't get you in. So that's really, I think, one of the most important skills in maintaining a marriage and even in a divorce, because you're still going to be possibly co-parenting with this person. So it's important to be able to still communicate even upon divorce. It almost seems like it becomes more important because now there's more elements coming into the situation once you're no longer living under the same roof. The decisions they're making, the people they're bringing into your children's lives, you yeah. know, it's, it's very complicated. No, it absolutely it can get more difficult. And the other part of that is that when you're married, if you get in a fight or if there's an issue, you know, usually there's a common ground that brings you back because you still have feelings for each other and, you know, you can cuddle at the end of the night. But when you're divorced, you know, the cuddling usually stops. <laughs> and so in a situation like that, um, yeah, it can be more difficult. The communication's harder. I mean, it definitely is because you don't have the same common ground that you might have had during the marriage. Do you also offer or think that it's helpful to do mediation? Or where does mediation come into the process? I just, someone was recently saying, oh, we're going to mediation. And I've always wondered, what is the role of mediation? So, you know, that's a good question. And, and actually it segues into something that I would want you know, your listeners to understand. So in divorce, I say there are three ways to get divorced. There's mediation, collaborative law, and litigation. So mediation is where you work with one person who's a neutral, and usually you will have attorneys, but they're typically not in the room. They're typically on the outside that you'll just consult with throughout the process. And during mediation, it's a voluntary process, meaning either party can say, I don't want to do it anymore. And what it is, is you have this one person who is not acting as a judge, and that's very important for people to understand, but this is a person who's going to work with both parties to help them come to a place together and to help them come to an agreement together. Mediation is one of those things, if you can do it, it's fantastic. It's a self-selecting process and not, it doesn't work for everyone but it is definitely the nicest way to do it. And usually it's the least expensive. And if you are able to do it, I recommend it hundred percent. And I actually recommend it. Even if you question it, I recommend that you at least try, try one session. You know, the worst thing that can happen is you have to pay your mediator space. But if you can even resolve something like custody, which, you know, will cost you tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars in therapy bills and legal bills, resolve that at least in mediation. But there are people that feel like mediation is not for them. They either feel there's such a power imbalance in the relationship you know, if abuse is involved, sometimes that makes it very challenging. If you have some of that's in what I call the financial dark, meaning that they don't know anything about the finances, one spouse completely handles it and the other does not. 
then the next step I say, if you can't do mediation or you just don't think it's the right fit, you feel like you need an attorney in the room and more representation there, there's something called collaborative law. So collaborative law is where you enter into an agreement saying that you're not going to go to court. And so it's a big push on settlement. Now, in the event that the process breaks down, because it's also voluntary, at that point, you cannot use those same attorneys in litigation. So that's kind of the rub of the whole situation. So for an example, if I'm working with, let's say, the husband, and I'm representing him, and we're getting along great, and we're going through the collaborative process, and the wife says, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to go to court, then not only am I out, but so is my entire firm. So it's a very, very big push on settlement. And the other thing that's kind of nice about the collaborative approach is it's interdisciplinary. So you can bring in a divorce coach, which is a therapist trained in the model. You can bring in a financial neutral and you can bring in a child specialist. You know, what I say to clients all the time, I'm the most expensive player on the team. Like, why wouldn't you use these other people that do this day in and day out? And so it's a really, it's a nice way to do it. If you feel like mediation, you know, you just need a little bit more. Um, collaborative is a very nice way to do it. And then if collaborative and mediation aren't, you know, two options you want to do. There is litigation, but the thing about litigation is it doesn't necessarily mean you're running to court. You know, negotiations, you know, between attorneys, what I call kitchen table talk talks, where you basically try to like talk it out with your spouse, that would all fall under the umbrella of litigation because the court is looming. You can always go to court. You know, under any of those processes, you can always go to court, but litigation is the one that's there. You know, and sometimes it does mean going and battling out in court, but it doesn't necessarily always mean it. So, you know, one of the things about my firm that we talk about is that my firm does all three. Like we basically say, listen, when you come to my office, I'm not going to sell you on mediation or collaborative or litigation. I'm going to say what works best for you, you know, which I think is a really important thing is, you know, I say like people should have options and it's not a one size fits all. And so I think that's just a really important thing for people to know because a lot of people don't get divorced because they're scared they're going to have to go to court and they're scared of all the things that court and it's so expensive and don't get me wrong. It's expensive. I don't want to anyway undercut the expense that is associated with divorce, but I do want to say that you don't necessarily have to go to court. So, you know, whether that's what's holding you back from getting out of a relationship that you truly want to get out of and your answer to me when I say, are you sure you're going to divorce is yes. Don't think it's because you have to run to court. Uh, do different states have different timeframes in laws? Like, is it quicker in some places, longer in other places, depending on where you're at? Probably. I mean, you know, I only practice in New York, so I can't necessarily speak to the timeframes outside of New York. But that said, I mean, it's not a quick process. Like they say, it takes like 10 minutes to get married. It can take like two years to get divorced. Oh my goodness. Wow. What is your kind of end game in what you do? Like when you go to work each day as a divorce lawyer as a matrimonial attorney, which I think is such a lovely way to put it. You know, what is your end game? Where do you find, I'm just curious, where do you find your joy or your purpose in what you do? So, I mean, first of all, I can start off by saying I absolutely love what I do, like fully, fully love it. Um, you know, I've been doing it for over 20 years. I can't imagine myself doing anything else. I think it's, you know, the best type of law to practice. So I enjoy it. But one of the reasons that I do enjoy it is because I do get to help people. And for me, you know, my joy is when I have a client that comes in that is just absolutely, you know, disaster. Think the whole world is ending. Feels like, you know, if I'm representing, let's just say a woman in a more stereotypical type of thing where she feels she never balanced a checkbook, she knows nothing about finance, she feels completely like as if her entire world is falling apart in front of her. And I watch that transformation through time and, you know, working together, empowering her, teaching her how to manage finances, making her realize that, you know, her title and identity is not 100% tied to her spouse or to her children for that matter, that she has an independent being. Um, and just watching the transformation, I mean, I have so many success stories of women that were in these very difficult, dysfunctional marriages, 
scared to get out, got out and have become these like these amazing people. Not to say they weren't amazing before, but now they've been able to shine. So, you know, I say to people, you know, divorce, the way I look at divorce, it helps you get, you know, it's getting you out of a dysfunctional relationship and opening you up to a healthier one. And I truly believe that. So you basically have a little bit of mentorship and coaching that's wrapped up into what you do, at least in the way you do it. Right. Well, I joke all the time, the most expensive therapist they've got. <laughs> hey, but if you are giving perspective to people on, on the reality of the consequences of a decision like divorce, because I think we do have a little bit of an idea that this is a quick fix or this is the easy way to handle it, or it's the only way to handle it. Right. And, and I think that that's not true. I mean, you know, what happens is that, you know, again, you know, marriage, I think, breaks down also, you know, as much as communication, it's really expectations, too. And, you know, and it's being it's having the ability to grow together. You know, I was out to lunch with a friend yesterday and who's been married for let me say, 35 years, which I think is so nice. And, you know, and I asked him about it. they got married very young, which, you know, you don't see all the time. And, you know, their kids are already out of the house and, you know, they're living their lives. And, and his wife is just lovely. And so, you know, I asked him, I said, what, what do you think made this work, you know, as well as it does? And he said, you know, not, and I thought this was so well put. He's like, you know, we're always on the same page. He's like, the page changes, but we're always on the same page. And I love that because I think that that really is what it comes down to because it's a question of whether you're going to grow together or grow apart. And, you know, look, when you first meet somebody, you know, first of all, you have that whole honeymoon phase, which is so lovely and fun and great, but <laughs> then you get married and life sets in and people have bills and you have jobs. And then you enter children into the mix, which, you know, as wonderful it is to have children, they're very, very difficult <laughs> and it takes a lot out of you. And I think that what happens a lot is that people, you know, you get into the business of child rearing. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You know, it's not talking about anything except, you know, taking Sally to the soccer field and Bobby to the baseball field and, and just, it's, it's all like logistics. And so what happens when the kids go to school and go off to college, the parents, you know, sit down at the kitchen table and look at each other and say, so now what? <laughs> and they're kind of in this position where they really don't have anything to talk about because they've completely grown apart. And so that's, I think, very common. And I think that's very hard. And that's one of the reasons that divorce occurs very often once the kids go to college, you know, a lot of people say they stay together for the kids, but they realize that that was what gave them the commonality and something to talk about because they realize they've completely grown apart to the point they have nothing in common if the children aren't there to be that buffer. That is such a huge problem. It yeah. really is. And I think it is more for the women, mm -hmm. a pitfall for women than it is for the men because they're generally, let's just generalize. And a lot of the time the man is working, the woman's at home. Or even if they're both working, it's almost as if it's just natural to assume that the mother will kind of run all the kid things, you know, the dad will run all the car house things. And I homeschooled. Uh, so I know what it is to have the kids be kind of the key focus that we do. But I think when it comes to tools and resources for marriages, two people is a family. Right. I think sometimes we get caught up in that idea that we're not a family till we have children. But I think that's very common. You know, one thing that I, uh, I had a friend in law school who told me, you know, we're in our early 20s, and she said, I'm never going to have children. And of course, I'm like, of course, you'll have children, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it is one of those things where you, you know, and she 
definitely was a bit of a party girl. And so I kind of felt like, you know, probably shouldn't have children. Right. Well, definitely not at that time, but I really, you know, kind of thought that eventually we'd all come, you know, she would. And we, we lost touch, but we met up about probably about four or five years ago and she never had children. And I found it really interesting. We talked about it and I was like, you know, and in a way I had such respect for her because of the fact she was married and had been married to actually our high school sweetheart. And she really knew that this was not right for her. And she said, I have a lot of, you know, nieces and nephews. She's like, but she, she said, I'm too selfish to have children. You know, I know it's important to me and I just don't think that I want to have children. And, and the fact that she stuck to, it, and she said there were a lot of social pressures and everybody kept saying to her, when are you going to have one? When are you going to have one? And people would look at her when she would say she wasn't as if there was something wrong with her. Yeah. And I had just so much respect because I think that having children is a big decision. And I think that people take it for granted and just do it because you're supposed to do it. But I think you should only be doing it if you want to do it, not because you're supposed to do it. And so I always, I like, I, my respect for her is so huge because she knew herself. And, you know, if she had, I'm sure she would have loved her daughter or son if she had one, but she knew enough not to have a child that she really wasn't what she wanted. It's actually a very mature and intelligent decision. No, I would agree. (laughs) (laughs) I have a friend who she had a couple of brief marriages and then she stayed single, but she early on thought, you know what? whether or not she was married, you know, the point was she didn't have a plan to have children because she had decided that the career was what she wanted to invest herself in. And she has a very full life and doesn't have regrets because like your friend, she thought through the process of, is this something that really makes sense for me? But what do you do in the instance, or do you have as high of a, of an issue of divorce with people who don't have children? You know, it's hard to tell. Um, I don't know what the statistics on it. My guess is not. I mean, there was an article, I want to say it was in Time Magazine, that they actually did some study that showed that people without children are actually happier, (laughs) which I found to be a really interesting thing. You know, part of this, you know, to talk about this a little bit, part of this is the definition of happy. You know, that's something that I do talk to clients about too. And they say, I'm not in a happy marriage. I said, well, what's a happy marriage? Like, what does that even really mean? Does that mean that, you know, it's, chocolate and roses every day? Or does it mean that you have a best friend? Like, what is your definition of happy? And I think that people don't know, you know, and you know, I think about it too, like, what's my definition of happy? And sometimes I say, what would you change in your life? You know, if you could change something tomorrow, what would it be? And many people say not a lot of things. I said, then I think you're pretty happy. (laughs) But it's, it's a hard, you know, it's a hard definition because there's, and again, I do think social media plays a large role in this. Um, You know, they also talk about you know, I know in New York City, they talk a lot about, you know, the fact that people in New York City have so much more stress. And part of it is because there's so much choice. You know, you look around, there's a million different restaurants. If I want pizza, I literally have 10 places in 10, 10 block radius to choose pizza. And they've done studies also that said that people that live in, say, smaller towns or things that there are less choice, they're actually happy because choice can create anxiety. And I think that, you know, when you talk about social media and you talk about, you know, what's out there now and how easily accessible it is to meet up with your you know, high school sweetheart or start the flirtation and the banter and all of that. And you're watching all these people thinking they have these wonderful relationships. It creates anxiety and it creates unrealistic expectations of marriage, which I think then makes you feel unhappy, but you really might not be. That's an interesting point that getting kind of stuck on that idea of happiness as the goal. Right. It's such an external thing to put all your eggs in that basket. Because from what I do, I podcast, obviously, <laughs> but I'm also a coach. And I coach women in transformations in their life. 
I'm about helping them with breakthroughs so that they can become the woman that they want to be and accomplish the things that they want to accomplish. And you may relate to this, but I am not a magician, nor am I a fortune teller. But my life experience has given me the ability to be intuitive into situations and ask the right kind of questions that help that person come to their truth, their answer. Because I don't know what's right for another person. I have my life experience that might give me an inkling of maybe this decision's not so hot. Maybe this decision would be a little better. But at the end of the day, helping people get from point A to point B and recognizing where they may be putting their power somewhere where it doesn't belong. No, I, that, I would absolutely agree with that. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, where you want to put your energies, you mm -hmm. know, to the day, you only have so many, you only have so much. And so you can focus it on your anger. If that's what you choose, you can focus it on your children. If that's what you choose, you can do your career, you can do yourself. There's a lot of things, but you're not going to be able to do all of it. So if you choose to focus a lot of your energy on anger, something else is going to suffer. And, you know, again, I say to people all the time, and I say it to my kids too, like everything's a choice. You know, I even like, you know, I just had a conversation with my daughter recently. Um, I have a 10 and 12 year old, two daughters. And I just had a conversation with one of my children recently where we were talking about a kid that, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, just wasn't being the nicest and, you know, said something that wasn't, you know, didn't make my daughter happy. And I said, well, you know what? You have a choice. I said, you can be hurt by this comment and that's totally your choice to have it, or you can choose not to. Like that is, you know, but realize that's your choice. This person, whatever they said to you, that's not what hurts you. What hurts you is your decision to let it hurt you or not. And mm -hmm. I said, and it's perfectly fine if you decide to do it. You can say to yourself, you know what? Yeah, I want to be hurt by that. And that's a, that is the thing. But just realize who has the power of that choice. That person didn't have the power. You have that power. And I think it's such an important message. And I talk to my clients about it too and say, every day you make a choice of what is going to penetrate you and what's not. You know, and again, but I give them permission to be penetrated if that's what they feel of me you know, being hurt. Um, I give them that permission because they can feel that if they want, but just realize who's making the choice. And I think it's a really, especially when you have clients and people who feel very weak in their marriage or feel, you know, the power struggle that exists to give them that kind of power, which they, they do have, but to have them recognize it, I think is just a very, very important thing. Well, with two psychotherapist parents. <laughs> I can only imagine the conversations and the tools and things that have happened in your home. But it is so true that people don't recognize the personal responsibility that they have, the autonomy that they have in their lives, either in a relationship with their spouses, with their children, in their jobs. There are some people who literally allow everyone else to decide how they feel what they should do, how they should live their lives, how they should show up in the world. And I think when it comes to divorce, you've already talked about this, people lose themselves. Yeah. No, they absolutely do. I mean, well, I think they lose themselves sometimes in the marriage. Yes. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, again, uh, you know, I, I talk about this sometimes in the fact of, you know, identity and, you know, what happens a lot and, you know, I encourage this amongst my friends too, but what happens a lot, especially if you are somebody whose primary, um, you know, your primary job is basically to raise the children. If you don't have that outside, you know, job or anything like that, and you're primarily home with your kids. In those sort of situations, you know, what happens a lot, and we do a lot of, well, let me even back up. We do a lot of Wall Street divorces. So I do a lot of like your stereotypical investment banker and stay-at-home mom. So that, that's, that's a very typical scenario of what we do. And so what happens a lot in these, and I've seen this as a pattern, 
is you have, you know, the Wall Street father who goes out, makes a couple million dollars a year and comes home and says to the wife, like, I could do what you do, but you couldn't come. You couldn't go to Wall Street and do what I do. You know, I could raise these kids. I could, you know, make sure they have food. Like, you know, they, they, they kind of oversimplify what happens um, in raising a child. And, you know, and, and not even to fault them. I mean, it's the type of thing, because from their view, how hard is it to do an igloo ice project for school? Or how hard is it to, you know, do simple math? Or, you know, it doesn't look that difficult. So fine. So that, that's the dynamic in the marriage. Then they get divorced. And now from these women's perspective, the father has the children, whatever his parenting access time is. And while the, you know, she might've been making all the food and, you know, hand, you know, doing it by hand and basically practically chewing up their food and spitting it into these kids' mouths, <laughs> the father, you know, has the kids and, you know, yes, he might be the McDonald's and, you know, his daughter's pink tails may come back and they're not totally parallel, but they survived, you know, they had a good time with that. And the wife is devastated because now he did do what she does, maybe not as well, but he did do it. And she still can't go to Wall Street and make a million dollars a year. And it is, it ruins her, her identity gets destroyed and her self-esteem is, and he was right. And that is a very, very hard thing for them to understand. Now on the flip side, I will also say that, you know, I have a lot of men who, you know, again, in these stereotypical situations who were with, you know, love their children. I mean, they, they truly love them, but they not have been as involved in the day-to-day, you know, raising of these kids. And, you know, they see them more on the weekends and the weekends you're driving from soccer games and birthday parties and blah, blah, blah. So they're more of the, you know, I say the soldier dads where, you know, the mom says you have to be here, you have to be there, you have to pick this up. And they do all of that and they feel that they're contributing and they are, um, but the mom's still the dictator and, you know, she's still the producer and telling them where to go. So what happens with some of these dads is that they really don't get to know the ins and outs of their kids in the same way that the mom does. You know, and I, I recently actually had a client who has, the daughter was four or five years old, the young kid. And he was having his first overnight with her and he was petrified, you know, and this is a big wall street guy makes about $3 million a year. And literally the fear he had, because he really hadn't been, he's alone with her in the activity type thing, but he never really did the whole bedtime routine. He never really did, you know, I mean, she doesn't have homework, but like the, you know, the kid type stuff, he just wasn't involved in that. And, you know, he was too proud to call the mom and say like, what's her favorite stuffed animal or what book does she like before bed? And he didn't know a lot of these things. And so he was so scared that that night was going to be a disaster, which it ended up actually being a disaster because the daughter was screaming and crying the whole time because ultimately ended up happening. And she didn't have a certain stuffed animal that she wanted. And every (laughs) color crayon he pulled out was the wrong one. And it was just one of those things that everything he tried to do, he didn't have the right cereal. He thought he bought the right cereal, but it wasn't the right brand. And, you know, all those type of things. You know, things that little nuances that a kid, you know, has that you only know if you're raising this child on a day-to-day basis. And I said to him, and this was, again, that typical thing, I said, you know, while I understand, you know, and he belittled a little bit of what her role, the mom's role was in the marriage and in raising the children. They also had a nanny, which added to all of this. But I said to him, I was like, it's not that easy. You know, I said, but I also said, you will figure it out. I said, but it's not that easy. And, you know, I was upset with him for not calling the mom to find out what her favorite color crayon is because he was being too proud. I said, so you just had a really loud child all night, you know, and you had a screaming child, which could have been about, you know, you could have gotten past that if you were able to make that phone call, but he wouldn't because he was not willing to be that person that says, yeah, you were right. At the end of the day, though, my point being, though, is that as much as women go through this, men go through it too in some way. And, you know, and it seems almost second nature to a lot of these moms, you know, and maybe it is on some level and maybe it's not with some dads, but you do see a shift. I will say like the shift of, you know, 10 years ago, if I had a dad that came in and said he wanted 50-50 custody, 
I would basically say, you know, where is she beating this child? And now if dads want 50, 50 custody, you know, I say, let's, you know, let's talk about it. And it's, it's really, the conversation has shifted greatly and it's gotten to a point where, you know, I don't think we're a hundred percent there yet. Where basically if a dad comes in and wants 50, 50, he's getting 50, 50, it's like a slam dunk, but give it another five to 10 years. And I'm basically going to have to, if I'm representing the mom who doesn't want that, I'm going to have to prove why the burden will a hundred percent be shifted because you're seeing it. It's a result also of women and me in the workforce. I mean, you're just seeing these shifts in these cultural norms. And so, you know, soon like dad's going to know what the favorite crayon is in the same way that mom is. I was wondering how the role of mindset, do you see patterns in mindsets and people coming in kind of maybe assuming a story about divorce and, and the, I don't know if it's the solution that it's going to bring or the outcome they expect. Do you have, do you see that there are mindsets that you are able to coach or shift people to kind of make them more aware of whether or not that's a good choice for them? Right. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, you know, you get a lot of, you know, women that will come in and say, he does nothing around the house. He does nothing. Yes. He finally goes, you know, especially if you have a woman that works as well. Um, you know, so, you know, maybe he makes a little bit more, maybe he doesn't, but you have these women who kind of are like, if I got divorced, I wouldn't even notice, you know, what difference does it make? He does nothing, does nothing around the house. He's actually, it's like me having another kid and you know, I, I don't need this. Like I don't need him in my life. And the story I tell them when this happens is I, I talk about a client I had once who had the same gripe. She had a young child and I remember the, the baby, you know, it was the middle of the night and she had a terrible, terrible cold and she wanted to run out to, you know, the drugstore to buy, to buy some sort of cold medicine and the drugstore was about to close and the baby was crying. It was the middle of the winter. And I remember her saying that, you know, the husband was there and she was like, you know, she felt he was capable, you know, well, he didn't, he wasn't a capable person. He was capable of watching a sleeping baby. So she was able to kind of go out and get her medicine and come back. So then they separated and, you know, same sort of scenario where I don't remember she had a cold, but she wanted to go to the drugstore for something also the winter. And I remember he wasn't there and she had to take her, wake her baby up, bundle her up, take her out through the city streets in the snow. The baby's sleep schedule was all messed up. And so she ended up ultimately being up half the night anyway. So she was even sicker and blah, blah, blah. And it was one of those things where, you know, you talk about like the grass being greener and you talk about like when I say sliding glass doors and kind of looking at both ends of it, you know, yes, it, you know, while you didn't feel like he was there and I'm not saying stay married just because somebody can watch a sleeping baby, but at the end of the day, you do need to think about that. Think about the little things that someone else is in fact doing. They're not doing everything you want them to be doing, but they're doing something. And that's another thing I really talk about when I talk about also about not, you know, not having your kids on Christmas. I also want you to think about raising a child truly by yourself, you know, on your parenting time, you know, and hopefully people are going to work together and it's not going to be that feeling, but it might be. You need to be prepared for the worst. You hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That's kind of my motto. And I think that they really, you know, I think that's another thing that people just need to consider and kind of recognize that value for whatever it's worth in the marriage. The value of just having another person there if you have to run out. There you go. The ease, the ease of function we just get used to having that support, if you will. Yeah. Now, do you have a lot of women and men coming in in midlife kind of crises in their marriages between, say, like 25 and 35 years? Are you seeing a trend in that, in what you do? Yeah. I mean, that, that's always been a spot. You know, there, there are certain spots I find like some sort of trends. Like, I feel like there's a lot of divorces. Um, you know, there's not as many young divorces, like young as in the 20s. 
I would say 30s, you know, they realize that they got married in their 20s and it wasn't really the right person. It's, you know, we call the starter marriage and they may have a child or not, but you have that. Then you have the, you know, the large amount of people that divorce probably in their, I would say late 40s, early, you know, mid 50s, where that's when the kids go to college, you know, and that's when you basically look at each other across the kitchen table and say, I don't even know this person. Um, so you have a lot of that. I'm actually, interesting, I'm having people in their later ages, like, you know, I had, a, this is not the norm, but I had someone who was in their 80s wanting to get divorced. That's not the norm, I would say. But, you know, I'm definitely getting people in their 60s, um, you know, they're calling it the great divorce, where people are basically saying, you know, I don't want to die next to this person. And I still got a lot of life in me, and I'm ready to move on, and I don't want to do this anymore. And once the kids are out, and once finances are kind of established for whatever they're going to be, and people are, you know, retirement's another thing. You just have a whole lot more time together and you might not want that. So you're seeing like the, the various different stages. Mm, wow. And you think there's always been marriages that have failed over the years and haven't worked out, but I just feel like there seems to be less commitment to marriage as a whole. And I could be totally wrong, but it just seems like marriage seems like just another option for people and then divorces. Well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just get a divorce. Am I right on that? Or is that, you know, I think that, I mean, to some degree you're right. Cause I think that what ends up happening and I don't know, I don't know if I'd say it's commitment. What I really think is what's happening is, you know, women are now much more financially dependent and a lot of women stayed in marriages when they were financially dependent. So they didn't have a choice, but they didn't think they had a choice. Um, you know, and there was, you know, there's studies all over the place. You can find a study that sits and says it's better for the family to be a full unit and for the children to grow up with two parents in a home, even if they're not happy. And then you have other, you know, studies that will say that, you know, the exact opposite. And they'll say that it's better for children to have two happy parents, even if they're in different homes. So I think there's a lot of different studies out there. I think that in the, you know, in the past, I think people felt, you know, women felt that they couldn't get divorced. I think there's an element of women empowerment that exists now. You don't need a man. I mean, you're looking, you know, there are people having, women having children all over the place without being married. That wasn't happening really in the same way, unless it was in, you know, it was one of those things that was like a teenage pregnancy. It wasn't what you wanted. People are opting for this now. Um, so I don't know if I would say it's commitment to marriage as much as I would say the options are stronger because of the fact that women don't need men in the same way that they did. You know, the workforce is changing, all of that. But I do, you know, going back to social media, I do think that that is affecting it in some way to the degree that maybe the commitment doesn't feel as strong because of the fact that people are seeing so many options and they're weighing themselves, their own marriages against unrealistic expectations. And that may be why people are saying, well, I want to have that face for perfect life, which they never will. Exactly. But I think there's a beauty in marriage that gets overlooked where, you know, this is my perspective. Mm -hmm. Everybody has dirty underwear. Right. I already know about this dirty underwear. Now I happen to have a good marriage, so it's easy for me to say this, but there's still frustrations and personality challenges and two people are growing and changing, but it's like, if you leave one marriage and you get into another marriage, there's dirty underwear there too. Right. And well, all of the unseemly things, you know, burping and farting and leaving the dishes everywhere or underwear on the floor or whatever it is, right? right. Well, that, you're saying knowing the face of the devil. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And not to say the husband is the devil, but like that's what, you know, that's where you come down. And you're right. It's a question, you know, everybody's crazy, but it's a question of what crazy you can live with. <laughs> so true. Because you, you do exchange one thing for another. There really is no perfection. There is no Hallmark card marriage out there. No. There's, There's always the stuff between the lines, right? 100%. 
but it's really a question of what you can live with. If you're in a situation and what your expectation, you know, how realistic are your expectations of what life is? And it kind of goes back to the happy argument or the happy discussion about what is your definition of happy? You know, definition of happy being in a relationship where you truly enjoy the person. Like one thing I, you know, another thing when clients come to me and they're not sure they want to get divorced, I usually will recommend that they go away with their spouse somewhere without their kids. And I say, I want to know if you take away the craziness of the world, are you going to still enjoy that person? Do you actually think their jokes are funny? Not that I think every joke my husband says is funny, but every now and again, he has a good one, you know? And you know, that that's kind of where my standard is. And so I think that you really, you need to make sure that you can enjoy each other again, you know, but it's, it's hard. I mean, when you are, especially when you're in, you know, say your thirties and your forties and you're in that situation where you're raising your children and, you know, you're figuring out money things and there's just, there's so many pressures and there's so many things and you want to succeed on everything. Um, that's hard. You know, I say like the twenties are all about you. The thirties are all about someone else, your spouse, your children and stuff. And the forties, you slowly get to be good about you again. And then I haven't gotten to the fifties yet, so we'll see. <laughs> but I think that, you know, when it's about you, can you enjoy your spouse? You know, I talk about dating your spouse. We talk about things like that, you know, which sometimes is realistic and sometimes isn't, but you know, just from time constraints, you know, and money and money plays a role of stress. Like it causes divorce. I think that it causes stress. Um, especially if people don't have the same understanding of how they want to spend their money, what money means to them. I mean, the psychology of money could be a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> I need to have that conversation with somebody because I know that's like you said, it's such a big issue for a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. It's really what the meaning is. So we deal in the high net worth space, my office, my firm. And so I think the psychology of money is fascinating because, you know, most of my clients, like no one's going hungry. It's a question of which house they're going to have to give up. And so it's interesting when you watch the differences of how people interpret money, those that have earned it themselves and those that they inherited it and just what money means to them. I mean, it's really, I find it fascinating to watch this because again, it's not meaning, you know, as I said about eating, you know, that's, you know, that, that's a different definition of what money means to you but it can still have all these psychological components, you know, what you know, their parents gave them and what they didn't and how they interpret what their parents gave them and were they worth it. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just fascinating. I think. I can't even imagine, you know, what that must be like to be like, okay, here's a few billion dollars from your parents, you know, like right. what does that even look like? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, it's not always the greatest thing, you know, as much as it may seem like a good thing, it causes a lot of, you know, psychological elements to a child when they are handed things to a certain degree as opposed to earning it. So, you know, I have, I've had actually, it's interesting. I had this mediation case where they were worth you know, probably like 60 or $70 million, but their kids had no idea. They lived in, you know, a New York city apartment that was worth a million, $2 million kind of thing. They had an upstate house that was worth about six or 700,000. The kids, you know, they did go to private school, but they thought, you know, they were partially on scholarship and they thought they were on scholarship to the point that, when the daughter was applying to college, she asked her parents that they have to fill out financial aid forms. And the mother said, you know, no, we were okay. And it was only when they were getting divorced. And they were, first of all, the most lovely couple and totally got along. They just really decided that, you know, they like actually held hands during the mediation at one point. I mean, it was really like an odd situation, but they, uh, they just realized they weren't for each other at this point. But they had to tell their kids, like upon divorce, that there are actually these trust funds and they're actually worth all this money. And the kids were so shocked and actually angry because they actually felt lied to all these years. But I will tell you, these kids were stellar children. These kids, the academics, they were in all these things. I mean, they were such motivated, strong children. And my 
client, both of them really believed that if they knew what they had, they would never have been that way. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, we talk a lot about this with clients about money and how they want to, you know, how they want to deal with money, especially in a divorce situation where you have one parent that may feel differently about money than the other. You want to be on the same page about how you're raising your children in terms of money. You know, but you talk a lot about self-worth that comes up with money. I mean, not to say that money is the measure of everything, but it is a measuring stick. And when you take that away, children have, you know, or people in general can sometimes not have, not know where to measure themselves against. And that can take away motivation, which, you know, spirals to a whole bunch of different issues. Mm-hmm. Do you have the same, were these adult children that they were having these issues? One with? was going to college and one was, no, one was actually, I guess, I think like 16 or so. So not adults, but you know, not babies. A little bit older. I know for me that um, I had a friend years ago, this is back when we were all getting married about the same time. We had a discussion about the person that she was marrying. I was like, you know, this mature woman of a year or two of marriage, you know, I had so much experience under my belt. But the one thing I did say to her, she was saying, you know, do you think I should marry this guy? I said, you know, it's a really good idea to have some things in common that you like to do together. Because right now you have like these two completely different lives. Like, how is that going to work? You have no common ground. And I think at this end of marriage, and she did end up marrying him and it did end up not working out. And it did come down to, he wanted to do his thing. He didn't want to be involved in her thing and his thing kind of led him down. He made some choices that weren't the best. But on this end, I think there's that same journey that has to take place. You've been married all of these years, and yes, we may have lost touch, but people are constantly growing and changing, and our relationships are growing and changing. It's kind of like a high school reunion. You know, you go back after 20 years, and everybody's talking to you like you're that 16-year-old cheerleader. Like, I go back, and I just had like my 30th a few years ago, and they were like, oh my gosh. I'm so happy you're here. Remember in high school, you were the best cheerleader. Like I was literally having people compliment me on my cheerleading skills. And I'm like, dude, I haven't been a cheerleader since college, (laughs) you know? And I I think that's great, but we can sometimes lock people into something that they were years and years ago. It doesn't mean that what they were was bad or good, but it's like people change and the change doesn't necessarily mean that it can't work or that it's a bad thing, but I think we need to almost start over on a regular basis and leave space for that person to be different and be curious about that difference and get to know them like we would someone outside of our home. I think we sometimes insulate and don't give them the same respect and space we do meeting a new friend. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, that, that's kind of the taking for granted thing if you're in a marriage for a really long time. You know, and I think that really goes back to, again, what my friend was saying. It's a question of the page changing, but being on the same page. And I think it's also growing together. But yeah, I mean, but it's hard. I mean, people, you know, there's an element of inertia that exists in everyone. And so a lot of people just kind of keep going because that's what you do. And look, it takes a lot of energy to change. You know, it takes a lot of energy to change for the good or for the bad, for that matter. But people are tired. (laughs) You know, I know I'm tired. And, you know, sometimes even with divorce, we talk about, you know, is it the right time to get divorced, even if you want to get divorced? And a lot of it is like, do you, are you ready? Like I say to clients, like, are you ready for the second part, your second full-time job? You know, do you have the energy for that? And, you know, it's one of those things where you really need to think about, am I ready for everything this is going to entail? Is it, you know, it's going to entail the psychological components of my children, psychological components on me, the financial, you know, 
differences that you're going to be living. And, you know, the idea of dating again, like, you know, there's a lot that comes up with all of that that takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot of energy to change. And that's why I think probably most people don't do it. Oh, you know, you saw my violent reaction. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. My daughters are of the age of dating. They're in their early mid twenties. And I'm just like, good on you. Like the whole way that dating even works now, it's not even the same. Oh no, it's totally different. I met my husband actually on a trip on a, we went to, um, Turks and Caicos on a, you know, on an adult single trip type of thing. And that wouldn't happen now. <laughs> the odds of people meeting that way, are, you know, the idea of meeting someone at a bar or at a party, like they'll know everything about them as soon as they walk in the door because they'll Google them and like have all the background on them. It's, it's a different, so creepy. well, what happens now, and this is, so this is another reason why you talk about people that are, you know, in their midlife or whatever it is trying to get divorced, they're scared about the idea of dating and dating in a world. Like I know for me, there was no online dating when I started, when I was dating. And now to have to, you know, adapt to that type of technology and understand that when that is not what you've been brought up on is very scary, you know? And then look, there are people out there that are, you know, will post certain things that are not true. (laughs) You know, if you meet someone in a bar, they may say things that aren't true and that's fine, but there's something different about them doing it. It's much easier to do it behind a computer screen. And so I think that that, that's a very scary thing. And again, when people are divorcing, a lot of times they don't trust their judgment and their read of people, you know, because they're questioning themselves and they're thinking, how could I have married this person? How could I have been duped? How can this, how can that? So to start dating right away where you already don't trust your judgment, that's scary. You know, we, you know, I joke sometimes with clients, I was like, make your friends meet them first, you know, (laughs) make your friends kind of scope them out, make sure he's all right. And then go on a date with them. You know, it's like a great idea. I don't know how the guy would feel about it. <laughs> pre-dating. <laughs> we'll just call that pre-dating. There you go. Maybe we're on to something. <laughs> hey, you know what? Instead of a dating, uh, dating app, why don't you and I just start like a pre-dating app? You know what? It's not the worst idea in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something to that that you really do have to think about with divorce. Like, are you okay with being alone? If you still have young children, are you going to bring someone into their life? Are you okay having someone else speak into your children's lives? I just got my teeth cleaned and the gal who cleaned my teeth was a single mom. And she was saying that she'd been dating this guy on and off and they had been engaged a couple of times. You know, it's like one of those things where they never are quite committing. And she broke off the engagement because neither one of them were willing to let the other person basically co-parent. You know, you can be, we can be together, but you can't parent my children. And he was like, well, we can be together, but you can't parent my children. And I looked at her and I said, you made the right decision because you cannot be in a relationship and draw lines like that. Like if you're not willing to be all in, you're going to have trouble from the get go. Yeah. Well, blended families is a whole new, you know, it's not a whole new thing, but it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing and it's very, you know, people are very sensitive to it. And sometimes even in our separation agreements, we will say, you're not allowed to introduce, you know, any significant others to children unless, you know, tons of different contingencies, sometimes unless you're engaged, sometimes unless you've been dating for a certain amount of time, sometimes unless the other spouse has met the person first. You know, there's a lot of different things because you want to protect these children who now just have their parents no longer together being introduced to a bunch of different people. Um, You know, we talk a lot about that and just, you know, how you handle that type of thing and then the sensitivities that go with it. But, you know, it's hard because you do have, you know, I have friends that have been married into, relationships where there were children. And, you know, you talk about the co-parenting, 
So a lot of times it's very difficult because the kids are like, you're not my mom. Like, don't tell me what to do kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is hard because they're not. And especially if there's any contentious divorce, usually the mom, the real, you know, the biological mom is going to be very clear and being like, you don't have to listen to her. You know, she's not your mom. And that gets into a whole thing. And these kids get somewhat caught in the middle. And, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a difficult dance. You know, I have a, actually a very good guy friend who's married to someone who has children. And he, you know, the two of them have agreed together that he is not going to be, I mean, he'll make sure these kids are safe and stuff, but he's not going to reprimand them in the way he's going to be more their friend because the father is such a strong role that he doesn't want the kids to feel conflicted. You know, I mean, obviously if they're doing something bad, he'll stop them, but it's not, he's not going to have the talks, you know, he's not going to talk about sex with these kids. He's not going to have these father moments and he's going to be very sensitive to it because he wants to respect the boundaries. And I feel like as long as people are on the same page about how the kids are going to be co-parented, that's fine. Um, it's when they're not on the same page, like it sounds like you're a teeth cleaner. Uh, that is the situation where it probably won't work out. Yeah. I was thinking through while you were talking about, um, you know, this co-parenting and, and figuring out where all the boundaries are and things. Sometimes you even have resistance from adult children. Oh, absolutely. I think sometimes adult children are worse. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. So adult children, you know, they're very protective of their parents. Um, you know, whether they're scared that, you know, the liability will fall on them because they've already established their own lives, you know, but they're, it's hard. And, you know, adult children, I find actually more often than not are more difficult to come around to the idea of their parents divorcing than younger children. And maybe because younger children who are still in the home have to accept it because they're in the home and they're part of it. And the adult children are out. But I've had a lot of problems with adult children, especially if there's a new relationship involved. So, you know, I have a client right now who's in a new relationship. His, you know, soon-to-be ex-wife accepts it, but his daughter won't, who's an adult daughter. And she, you know, whether it's the loyalty to the mother, whether it's the feeling that your dad just shouldn't be with anyone else, whatever it is, she will not, she's not speaking to him. And, you know, and the mother, to her credit, is not bad-mouthing. She's not encouraging it. She's not saying, go talk to your dad, but she's not saying, don't talk to your dad. She's kind of staying neutral on it but it's a really big problem and it's just, it's breaking my client's heart. It's just another layer of, you know, is the grass really greener? Because you're, I feel like you're exchanging one set of issues, problems and, and dynamics for just another. Yeah, no, you are. But it's a question again of what you can live, you know, and as long as your expectations are realistic, you know, my thing is like, you don't, you know, life is short. So there's that too. You don't want to be in unhealthy situations. There's abuse or any of that sort of stuff. You know, I don't have a lot of room in that, in my mind for that. I agree. Um, But if it's just a question of, you know, I don't want to say being bored or being restless or whatever that sort of thing is. I mean, that, that's where you have to realize, is this a momentary thing or is this real? And, and, and really weigh in all the factors and think about all the stuff that we've been talking about before making decisions like that, because, you know, they're lifelong decisions that will forever have an impact. So you just need to be smart and not think in the moment. Big forest trees situation. And you know, you said these things are happening in the moment. I think that's really important to remember. If yeah. we can somehow get a little bit more of a helicopter view of the situation, you know, what are we going through? What is it that we're emotionally or physically experiencing? Because, you know, midlife includes hormonal shifts, just like when you were a young kid. Yeah. You know? And you have such more complex things that you need to deal with and your hormones are doing crazy things. So it can make you a little less um, realistic or balanced in certain moments, you know, hormonally. But I mean, you're 
obviously not going to be coaching people's hormones, but I think you do have a lot of layers that go in, but we are already rounding an hour and I'm enjoying this conversation so much, but I know that I'm in respecting your time as a busy woman. And I do want to ask you before we wrap it up, if you could give people three things that they could really consider either for saving their marriage or thinking about if divorce is dancing around in their mind, what are three key things that you would really want them to take away from this conversation before they make any major decisions? What would those be? I think the very first thing is that they should try therapy, marriage counseling therapy. I think you should do all of that. Even if you're pretty sure this is done, there's no harm in it. It's going to cost one hour, you know, just try it because again, you just don't want to have regret. I think that's probably the number one thing. Secondly, I would say that if you are going to move forward, that you choose your attorney wisely and choose somebody who you know, specializes in matrimonial law, but also someone you connect with and someone you feel you can trust because being represented by the wrong person can be a disaster. Um, and if I said the third thing, I'd really say that, you know, kind of going back to what we've been talking about, and I don't normally put this on my list, but I think I'm going to now, I think you need to define your happy. Like know what your happy is and just see if there's possible, if you have, if you are being unrealistic and, you know, make sure that, you, you've defined what it is to be happy and look, your marriage might not make you happy and that's fine. But again, it kind of goes back to the educational to ensure that this is in fact really what you want to be doing. And, you know, being divorced will make you happier. You need to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think having a misconstrued idea of what happy is can really lead to some serious regret or disappointment. Absolutely. When the divorce doesn't deliver the quote happiness you thought you were going to get. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's heavy. <laughs> I like that. So I want to thank you again, Jacqueline, for joining me today. It's been a really great and very helpful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. I have been speaking with Jacqueline Newman, managing partner at a Midtown matrimonial law firm. She is a matrimonial attorney and an advocate for women and men out there who are thinking about divorce and helping mentor and coach them to the right decision for them. And if you want to know more about Jacqueline and our conversation, head on over to www.feminineroadmap.com forward slash episode 085. You will find the show notes and resources there. And while you're there, please leave your name and email address join my tribe. I have a special gift for you there. I am also on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. If you would go find Feminine Roadmap, subscribe, comment, and rate my podcast, more and more women will find us because those platforms will push us to the top. And as always, I want to thank you for being a part of my tribe. I want to thank you for listening in each week and being a part of these life-changing conversations. And as I always say, you are worthy of the life you desire to live. So get out there, do more, be more, and get after it today, my friends. Thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Bye-bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.